Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. Respectfully, Minister, how can anyone believe anything you say? How does this keep happening on such serious files? More questions for the public safety minister over who knew what about Paul Bernardo's prison transfer. We talk about Marco Mendicino and how the government is sharing information with our panel of political observers. We are advancing a plan for the future. We are not simply hoping for the best. The government tables a long-awaited bill on sustainable jobs, but will energy-producing provinces be on side? Joining us is the federal natural resources minister, Jonathan Wilkinson. And Canada freezes ties with an Asian infrastructure bank over claims of Chinese Communist Party control. Reaction to that and the latest foreign interference testimony with Conservative MP Michael Chong. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson in for Michael Serapio tonight. And that's a look at reporters pressing the public safety minister for answers on Paul Bernardo's prison transfer. Marco Mendicino says it's unacceptable that staff didn't tell him in advance about the convicted killer's move and that he's dealt with the matter internally. But as Conservatives continue demanding his resignation, Mendicino is offering little detail on why he was in the dark. What's important is that uh, these issues are identified and they're corrected. And so that is what I have done with my team to be sure that there is uh, no further breakdown in information flow. It is important that I get those, uh, those briefings in a timely manner. That is made abundantly clear. More importantly than that, uh, back to the question that was posed, uh, I believe that uh, the decision to transfer Paul Bernardo to a medium security institution does not uh, sit well with Canadians because it is in the front to the victims, in particular of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French, and that is why we are going to support them. We're going to make sure that victims' uh, rights are at the centre of these decisions and that going forward, victims are notified in a timely manner before those decisions so are taken. So will he be... So let's welcome three political observers to talk about the public safety minister and more as we near Parliament's summer break. With me in studio is Tim Powers, chair of SUMA Strategies. Also joining us is Susan Smith, a principal with Blue Sky Strategy Group, and Melanie Richet, a senior consultant with Earnscliff Strategies. Good to see all three of you. Good to be here. Nice to see you. Susan, let me start with you. Marco Mendicino says he should have been briefed on Paul Bernardo's transfer. He says that he's dealt with it internally, that he's going to now make some changes to how the minister gets notified. But at the end of the day, can Marco Mendicino stay in his position as a public safety minister? Yeah, that's a, that's actually a very good question. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, this is horrible what's happened, uh, particularly for the Mahaffey and French families. There's no question. Anytime Paul Bernardo's name comes up, it must send shivers of pain down their spines because uh, it sends shivers down the spines of everybody else. There was clearly a gross lack of communication when it came to this file. If his staff was briefed, they should have told the minister uh, I also think there was a failure on the part of the correctional services to brief the minister or to assure that the minister had been briefed as well as the deputy there. I think there's failure all the way along. It was clear to me when I watched Mr. Mendicino's news conference this week that he 
he heard about it when he heard about it, not before. It was, the, you know, the day after, like everybody else, and was shocked. Um, but there's clearly been some failure there, and he's taken measures to rectify it in terms of issuing ministers ministerial edicts to say, from now on, victims' families must be notified, and the minister must be notified when it's people like, or people with criminal records, like the horrible uh, person in question. I don't even like to say the guy's name. He's such a bad person. So I think there were, I mean, we've all heard rumors that there'll be a shuffle at some point this summer. And it would, ex- I would expect that Mr. Mendocino would be part of that shuffle. Okay. So Tim, even liberal MPs we're hearing saying, look, there's a problem with how information is moving through the government. Who do you think is dropping the ball here? Look, I don't like to blame staff because ultimately the minister and ministers are responsible for all of that. Susan and I have been ministerial staff, and I know the ministers Susan and I worked with in different governments would have uh, been apoplectic uh, and taken a very different approach had had this befallen them. Look, clearly the government has some internal management challenges, and that's not said from a partisan perspective. I Look, I like Marco Mendicino, Andrew. I think he's a very decent fellow, but though my liking and his decency doesn't excuse a lack of ministerial accountability here, uh, in a different era, this may have been met with a resignation. I agree with Susan. I don't think Marco stays in this portfolio. He's politically important to the Liberals because he's very good on the ground. But the bigger challenge for the Liberals beyond the clear cultural challenges they're having internally around managing the government is this just keeps adding on to the the image they're projecting. And we found it in recent abacus polls of people viewing them as incompetent. And this is making more people look at the government and say, do we want to reelect them? And right now in our abacus poll, Andrew, 80% of Canadians say they want a change of government. This sort of stuff doesn't help the government. It reinforces that desire. Melanie, let me bring you in. Uh, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP have not followed the Conservatives in demanding uh, Mendocino's removal, but he is saying, uh, to Tim and Susan's point, the government is having problems with information sharing. Uh, So, uh, to your mind, is this a failure of the minister or the minister's staff or the public service? Well, I I think there's probably enough blame to lay around here. Um, This is obviously a huge mistake, and this isn't the first minister's mistake either. Um, I am from the the point of mind, though, that um, continuously asking for ministers to to be fired. um, Not that it's not uh, important that those ministers are accountable, but I think it removes the blame from the prime minister and it removes the blame from from the government. And I think that there is blame here to be to be had by by the prime minister in his office. Um, It it almost seems like the government is incapable to get ahead of stuff and to get a handle on stuff to really reassure Canadians. Yes, on this issue, but on um, on many issues. So t- to Tim's point of maybe this isn't, you know, a one issue thing that's going to change elect the voters' minds in the next election, but the series of issues that the government has been unable to get a good handle on, I think is going to um, be something that, that folks are, are really um, reflecting on before they cast their next vote. Okay, so let's move to another issue then, which is the foreign interference story and how that's developed. So We have David Johnston saying uh, late last week, I'm stepping down as special rapporteur because of a highly partisan atmosphere. And then you have the government accusing the opposition parties of being toxic. Now we have the government and Dominic LeBlanc saying, uh, look, an inquiry is still on the table that he's willing to hear uh, from opposition leaders. Susan, um, at least on the surface, there seems to have been a a small pivot in tone. What do you make uh, of what we've been seeing over the past few days? (laughs) 
Well, I think Mr. Johnston made the right move in the end. I was on the record from the beginning saying I think a public inquiry would be a good idea, though I'm not sure people were gonna, are going to be as satisfied as they'd like to be. What the, how, how wide open the national secrecy, uh, national security kimono is going to, going to be, but I do think it would be beneficial. I think uh, the government has made a good move in saying to the opposition, uh, or potentially a good move, saying to the opposition, okay, let's work together on the terms of reference. Let's work together on finding someone that you guys think is acceptable. Um, the, Dominic LeBlanc is always never at a loss for words. And I think he said, you know, after you put David Johnston through the snowblower, I'm not sure who's going to step up to take on that role because it is a toxic parliamentary environment. And I don't think uh, Mr. Polyev in particular is really looking to try to get any um, answers on foreign interference. I think he's just looking to score political points. So we need to make sure that whatever happens actually achieves what it needs to, and that reinforces the faith of Canadians in our democracy. And I think the government's realized that, um, you know, by involving the opposition, they did try to at the beginning, and the opposition rebuffed. But now the ball is clearly in the court of the opposition to to work with the government on terms of reference on some kind of next steps, uh, probably a public inquiry. I think Mr. Polyev can only complain so long, and Mr. Singh will hopefully participate in the process and give constructive input into something that provides results that Canadians are looking for. Okay, so Melanie, uh, let me get your thoughts on this, because as Susan says, the, the government is now saying to the opposition parties, look, come back to us with, with a timeline, with some potential names, uh, with a scope. Um, how do you think the NDP, the Bloc Québécois, the Conservatives should be reacting to this? Well, I think when it when it um, comes to the NDP, I think they've really striking a, a good balance throughout this whole um, issue of foreign interference. They have been demanding transparency. They've been asking for the answers that Canadians rightfully deserve, um, but haven't done it in a way where it is solely partisan, where it's only... Um, I'm trying to tear stuff down because I'm trying to tear stuff down, like like we've seen uh, Podiev do. So I think he's really, Jagmeet has, in particular, has really struck the right balance of trying to keep the government accountable. Um, but on an issue that is too important to just turn it into a, a partisan circus. So I think he's really uh, had the right tone on this um, as it relates to what kind of cooperation we can see from from the opposition on, on who could do this work. Uh, to Susan's point, I don't know who puts their hand up and says, I want to do this um, after everything that we've just seen. Uh, so I think it's going to be difficult to come to that agreement. And the closer that we get to the summer, the closer that we get to the fall, we're, you know, we're we're getting really close to when the next election is going to be. So do we even have the results of, of that potential inquiry before the next one so that Canadians are reassured that, that our democracy and our elections are protected is, is hard to say at this point. And Tim, so what are the stakes then for the government, for Mr. Trudeau, and for the official opposition, Mr. Polyev, who has uh, kind of been leading the process? He's saying, I've been meeting with the bloc leader. I'm going to uh, make contact with Jagmeet Singh and Elizabeth May. Um, for, the, for the opposition, I think they do have to look like they're part of the process of finding a solution. But ultimately, the opposition, I think, will not receive the heavier judgment on this, Andrew. It is up to the government to decide where to go next. And this plays into the narrative of the last story. You know, government not on top of a file, a key file involving foreign interference. So the government at some point is going to have to take and, and, and make some direction here, whether they can find people to do this or not. I mean, this, this remains a challenge. But to be fair to all concerned, and I think you're seeing this more in the 
debates of the House today. This isn't driving voter intention. This is not, it registers as a story, it registers around Mr. Johnson, but the top three issues in voters' mindsets, number one, two, or three, are not foreign interference. So the government has some room there on that front. Okay, well, we have to leave it there. Tim Powers, Susan Smith, and Melanie Riche. Thanks to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. The government has a new bill to move forward on its sustainable jobs plan. Bill C-50 includes a new partnership council with industry and labour, and it requires progress updates every five years. The government says the measures will help Canada's transition to a low-carbon economy. But Alberta Premier Danielle Smith says she'll fight any attempt to phase out her province's oil and gas workers. And she has plans to meet the Federal Minister of Natural Resources next week. And here now to talk more about Bill C-50 is Canada's Natural Resources Minister, Jonathan Wilkinson. Minister Wilkinson, good to have you here. Thank you for having me. Now, this bill on uh, transi uh, transition to sustainable jobs was first promised in the 2019 Liberal platform. So I want to start by asking you why it's now taken until June of 2023, nearly four years, to actually get this legislation tabled in the House. Well, I would say a couple of things. I mean, the first is um, this sustainable jobs legislation is about uh, continuing to evolve the government's plan to fight climate change and to build a strong economy um, for the future. And we have done an enormous amount to put in place a climate plan that actually shows how we're going to achieve our targets, but also uh, made huge investments to actually grow the economy. Concurrent with that, we've actually gone out and consulted with civil society, with unions and, and industry and indigenous peoples and provinces and territories. There was a long and extensive consultation. It was interrupted during COVID. We obviously were not consulting much during COVID. It, we restarted it after COVID was over and we've been working on it since that time. So, you know, I think that the time that has been taken has been taken in part because it's part of a broader architecture and in part because uh, we wanted to make sure we got it right. Right, and you had already released a, an interim sustainable jobs plan in February that outlined your government's broad strategy on the shift to net zero energy jobs. So with Bill C-50 that you've tabled today, what are the new concrete measures following up from that strategy? So the, um, the strategy itself kind of lays out where we're going, including you know, the focus on actually building strong regional economies, working province by province, territory by territory, through mechanisms like the regional, regional energy and resource tables, looking at how we seize the economic opportunities that come, come through the shift to a lower carbon world. Um, this legislation really puts in place some of the architecture to ensure continued focus on these issues, continued focus on, on those and on ensuring that we're actually um, enabling workers to move with us on this journey. Um, so things like the Partnership Council, which will be an ongoing body to advise governments on both economic strategy and on, uh, on uh, issues relating to supporting workers. Um, the, uh, there's a secretariat to try to ensure that the government is fully coordinated across many departments that are actually involved in this, uh, and a number of things like that. There's nothing, you know, in this, in this uh, bill that is particularly uh, shocking. It is really architecture about ensuring that this continues to be a priority and that we continue to seek input from, uh, from the public as we move forward. It is, in that measure, not that dissimilar to the net zero bill that, uh, that I introduced a couple of years ago, which is really, again, about ensuring the focus and ensuring that there are advisory mechanisms to help us get there. 
Okay, now, as you know, you've had pushback from Alberta and Saskatchewan on a lot of climate change policies, including uh, the Just Transition Plan, which is now the Sustainable Jobs Plan. Uh, Premier Danielle Smith, uh, at the time when you released that strategy in February, said she was perplexed, that she was puzzled, uh, and that it went against provincial constitutional rights over resources and over the labour workforce. So was there provincial consultation that went into this new bill? Well, there was provincial consultation, so there was a broad set of consultations across the country and provinces and territories uh, weighed in uh, on, on a number of elements of the, 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 uh, the development of this legislation. Um, but I would say that, you know, Premier Smith herself was the one who used the phrase sustainable jobs. I think it is something that we can, we can both agree is a positive term in terms of how we actually move forward to ensure a prosperous Alberta, a prosperous Saskatchewan, and a prosperous, you know, Ontario and everywhere else. Um, you know, and my focus is uh, working with Premier Smith and, and with her minister um, to try to ensure that we actually can move forward in a manner that, yes, reduces emissions. I think we all agree that we need to do that, but does so in a smart way that enables prosperity for Alberta. I will actually be in uh, Calgary on Monday to meet with Premier Smith and, and Minister uh, Brian Jean. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I fully, fully expect to engage a very constructive conversation about how can, we can work together. Okay, so let's talk about that meeting then, because if the Premier and uh, the new Energy Minister are across the table saying, we're still opposed to this, and so is Saskatchewan for that matter, and we're willing to use whatever we tools we uh, whatever tools we have to oppose this. You know, what's your answer going to be? Well, I mean, again, I would just go back to what the legislation is and isn't. This is just an architecture that actually puts in place a number of mechanisms around accountability and transparency. It puts in place a partnership council to advise the federal government. It is focused on areas of federal jurisdiction, um, not on provincial and territorial jurisdiction. So I, I really doubt that this is an area where we're going to have a lot of, uh, a lot of conflict. I do think there are areas where we're going to have to work together and strive to find collaborative pathways uh, around things like the electricity grid and, and uh, how we reduce emissions from the oil and gas space. Um, there have been differences in the past. I, you know, my, my pitch is, is let's identify the areas where we agree, and I think there are quite a number of them, and isolate the ones we dis disagree on and, and try to find solutions as to how we can actually close the gap. And that will be my, uh, my pitch to the Premier. And uh, you know, I think the Premier is a reasonable person, and, uh, and I, I expect that we will find an opportunity to be able to work together for the betterment of Albertans and Saskatchewanians and Ontarians and everybody else who lives in this beautiful country. Okay, I want to ask you about workers themselves. I know you had some Labour representatives with you at today's announcement. If there are oil and gas workers feeling anxious about the future, uh, about words like sustainable jobs and transition, what's your direct message to them about this bill and whether it actually helps them? Well, my message is this is actually a bill that's focused on supporting workers, uh, but and, that, and that's not just through supports directly to workers. That's about creating jobs and economic opportunity that provide, uh, you know, enable people to provide for their families. Um, it, that that is true in the oil and gas space, where the the biggest thing that we actually have to do is reduce production-related emissions. There is a continuing role for oil and gas during the transition, and even beyond in a 1.5 degree scenario, you know, all of the experts 
experts will tell you that there's a significant continuing role, particularly in non-combustion applications. So the focus really needs to be on reducing emissions. That is actually going to create huge numbers of jobs as many facilities put in place methane-related technologies, they build carbon capture facilities. But you are, there are also huge opportunities for the oil and gas space in the context of new and emerging things like hydrogen, where you can actually produce ultra-low carbon hydrogen from natural gas. That is not different in terms of the type of jobs from, from uh, an existing refinery complex. So I would just say there are huge opportunities, and this bill is about seizing them. All right, Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, thanks for your time on this. Thank you very much. The Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank says it welcomes a review of Canada's involvement and allegations of Chinese Communist Party control. Finance Minister Christopher Freeland said yesterday Canada would immediately halt its involvement in the bank. This after the resignation of a top Canadian executive. Bob Picard saying Canada's interests are no longer served by remaining a bank member. And with me now is the Conservative Party's foreign affairs critic, Michael Chong. Mr. Chong, good to see you. Good to be here. You and your party have long criticized Canada's participation in the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Uh, now, the minister saying yesterday she's not ruling out any outcome in the government's review. What's your reaction when you hear that? Well, we've long called on the government first not to join the bank and then subsequently to withdraw from it. I think Mr. Pickard's resignation uh, demonstrated what we've long known, which is that this is a the bank is a tool to promote Beijing's authoritarian form of governance uh, throughout the Indo-Pacific region. And for that reason, uh, we think the government should make a decision to withdraw from the bank and repatriate the public money they've invested in it. Now, the bank says uh, it actually welcomes the Canadian review. They put out a statement saying they'll be cooperating fully and demonstrating transparency. The AIIB uh, is actually promising its own internal review of those allegations from uh, Bob Picard and his resignation. Do you have any confidence in that process? I don't. I think the entire structure of the bank is to play a rival to uh, other banks that have been long established, such as the bank proposed by Japan the Asian Development Bank some decades ago that does work in the Indo-Pacific region, such as the World Bank that's been long established in Washington that does a lot of work around the world. Uh, Beijing didn't like the fact that these institutions were based on fundamental principles about a belief in freedom, democracy, uh, human rights, and the rule of law. And as a result, they decided to establish their own bank that would promote their form of governance throughout the region, an authoritarian model that is a threat to Western democracies. And so I think fundamentally our membership in the bank works against not only our interests and our values. And that's something that uh, is shared by many others, including Global Affairs Canada. Uh, the, the advice that the Deputy Minister, Marta Morgan, then provided to the government uh, several years ago was that this bank was fundamentally at odds with fundamental Canadian values and interests. Um, but it's not advice the government's taken, and here we are now at this point where they're finally reacting to a crisis. And so I know you're not in the government, so you're not going to speak for them, but you mentioned your party has called for a full Canadian withdrawal, a repatriation of funds. Uh, the House Finance Committee has also said Canada should withdraw. You mentioned Global Affairs Canada as well. Why do you think there is a reluctance at the top of the government of Canada? Yeah, I mean, to be clear, Global Affairs' advice was that the, the 
the principles on which the bank was based was, to, was fundamentally at odds with the principles on which Canada is based on. Um, I think the government um, just bullheadedly decided to proceed with the bank because they wanted to broaden and deepen ties naively with the People's Republic of China. Um, and I think the important, other important point to make here is that the bank has barely begun its work. It's in essentially uh, a startup phase. It has vast ambitions much beyond what they're currently doing. And it has ambitions to be many, many times larger than what it is now. And in doing so, I think would have a much more malevolent footprint throughout the Indo-Pacific region. And for that reason, it's imperative that we withdraw now before it becomes a much bigger problem later. Okay, staying with China, I want to quickly shift to what we've heard this week at the Procedure Committee on your question of privilege, uh, including what we heard from the Prime Minister's former interim uh, national security and intelligence advisor, David Morrison, uh, testifying on foreign interference. He says the CSIS 2021 memo on Chinese threats, uh, in his words, was meant for awareness and not as a spur to action. What's your reaction to that testimony? Well, I think clearly the government knew for many years that there was a PRC uh, consular official in Toronto by the name of Mr. Wei Zhou that was actively uh, collecting information on the family of, of myself uh, in order to further target me and was collecting information to target other parliamentarians. Uh, I think that information was relayed to all points within the government of Canada, including global affairs. And I think that should have prompted action right then and there to expel uh, this particular individual from Canada. It shouldn't have taken uh, a report in the Globe and Mail to have done that. Um, so clearly, uh, the government isn't taking seriously uh, national security issues. If they had, they would have taken action many years ago to counter some of these foreign interference threat activities. Okay, one final question for you on this. Uh, we also heard at that committee the RCMP saying uh, that they have in investigations underway, including an investigation uh, into the allegations involving yourself and your family. What more can you tell us on that process? Well, as this is an ongoing investigation, I'm not going to be commenting on that matter. Um, but I would, what I will say more broadly is that uh, it shouldn't take uh, a whistleblower releasing information leading to reports in uh, the national media for the government to have taken action on, on my case and on so many other cases. Uh, this should have happened many years ago. Uh, there have been five, six, four, four or five uh, committees of the House of Commons that over the last several years have produced at least five reports that have heard from hundreds of witnesses producing over 1,900 pages of evidence, uh, producing th over 30 recommendations to the government about how to combat these foreign interference threat activities from the People's Republic of China here in Canada, and yet nothing, very little, if nothing, has happened. And so, you know, Parliament needs to get the job done. The government needs to release information to Parliament. When Parliament produces these reports with recommendation, the government needs to treat them seriously rather than responding in a crisis fashion when it ends up on the front page of national newspapers. All right, Michael Chong, a foreign affairs critic for the Conservative Party of Canada. Thank you for this. Thank you. And that's Primetime Politics for Thursday. I'm Andrew Thompson in Ottawa. And for all of us at CPAC, thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.